Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Live Mike. Before we get back to our special coverage on race relations in Utah, I do have to bring you some breaking news. Kara Hoffelmeyer joins me in studio with added information on this plane crash in Centerville. Kara, what's the latest? Yeah, Lisa, let's go over a couple of the basics. This is west of Parish Lane and Legacy Parkway in Centerville. It's just off the parkway there. Uh, so if you're driving, as Ricky Meese just reported, if you're driving, you're going to probably see a little bit of slowdown and see some activity in that area. What we do know is that there were two people inside of this plane that crashed that were rescued by people just passing by. UHP tells us this was a fairly fiery incident. They don't know the status of those two people, but there were a lot of flames. We saw a lot of smoke on some traffic cameras. We're working to get you more information on that. KSL News Radio's Paul Nelson is working his way to the scene now, Lee. Kira, thank you. Good for those rescuers, huh? Can't wait to hear that full story. We'll bring it to you here as soon as we have it on KSL News Radio. Now, time is tight and I don't want to waste a moment with my next guest as we continue this coverage of race relations in Utah. I'd like to introduce you to Adrian Andrews, who is the Chief Diversity Officer at Weber State University. Ms. Andrews, thank you so much for your time. How are you? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me, Lee. Thank you. Tell tell me what are the duties of a Chief Diversity Officer? Well, You do all of the things if you're the chief diversity officer. Um, You help the institution recognize its climate, figure out where the gaps are, obstacles, opportunities for improvement, so that there can truly be inclusion and support across the board for all those who want to learn, work, or play at the institution. From your position, have you observed any of these gaps, either in the Weber State community or in the greater Utah community? Well, we all have gaps, and that's what the reality is. It's figuring out what are the gaps for our individual institutions and how do we address them for the populations that we serve. I'm fortunate in that there are chief diversity officers in almost every institution in the state. And we regularly meet. Lais Martinez at the system office uh, corrals all of us together so that we can share best practices, look at our issues and concerns, and figure out how to move together forward the best way that's going to promote learning, education, and community. Sure. You've been very generous with your time and your resources. Uh, I want to let people know that uh, today's programming has been brought about thanks in large part to your efforts. You have helped us make incredible and valuable and enlightening connections. I want to thank you for that. Uh, And I also want to ask you, why are these types of open and frank conversations about race relations so important, even when they at times can be pretty uncomfortable? Because it's when we don't have them that things really go wrong. It's that whole notion of a colorblindness. I don't see color, 
So then I don't need to talk about your color, your ethnicity, your culture, the identities you hold. But instead of not seeing those things, you erase me, you erase my culture, you erase my color, my heritage, and how that impacts the world that I live in and the opportunities that I have and how my experiences may fundamentally differ from your own, even though we're both working really hard to the same outcome. Talk to me more about that, because I will admit to you and to those listening that I am likely one of the guilty parties whose attitude was, I just don't I just don't consider race. I don't uh, you know, I don't I like you said, I don't see color. Uh, I have, you know, lately in recent years come to understand that that's not the greatest approach. Uh, but could you, you know, as an expert in these things, talk to me more about uh, why that's not uh, the healthiest of attitudes to have for a community? So when you don't see parts of people's identity, then you don't fundamentally see them. You pick and choose what's acceptable to you, and you assume that there's this neutral that we all operate off of. But that's not true. It's not neutral, and we don't all operate from that place. That's why it's so critical for us to understand the difference between equity and equality. Equality is when we all have the same thing. Equity is when we have what we need in order to move forward and be successful. One of the examples I like to use is imagine you're in a room full of people and you take off your shoes and put them in a big pile. Everybody gets invited to go back and pull out a pair of shoes as long as they're not the original shoes they had. Mm. Now, I want you to realize equality is that everyone has a pair of shoes. Equity is when everyone has a pair of shoes that fit. So these notions we have about, um, well, people are lazy and this is part of their cultural heritage or identity. That's a fundamentally skewed way of seeing or understanding people. Instead, consider what are the circumstances that this individual or group of people are coming out of. Um, one of the things that I have heard many people say is, you know, minorities, black people, brown people don't really care about home ownership. And I, and I have to push back on that because there were restrictions. There were things called redlining in place that stopped black and brown people from being able to purchase homes that maintained value so that they could create generational wealth that then passed on. So when you say you don't care about home ownership, there were limits to what people could do in terms of home ownership. Even if you look in Salt Lake at our original um, guides for sales and marketing of homes in Salt Lake, there were areas where there were no people of color and that was marketed that way. So please understand that some of these myths that we just accept as truth or that we assume to be true really are steeped in the practices of people in terms of how we wanted to create the communities that we live in. And so we're still dealing with those reverberations today. I see. We're speaking with Adrian Andrews, the Chief Diversity Officer at Weber State University. Ms. Andrews, we have one uh, we have one minute remaining. I'm sorry we don't have more time to sit here and talk. Uh, but I want to ask you about uh, a new phrase that has come into my uh, lexicon, and that is microaggression. I'm learning a lot of new phrases here, and microaggressions uh, is a phrase that I've been uh, introduced to here recently. W what is that, and, and how can folks combat it proactively? So a microaggression is all of those little subtleties that people might say to you, like, oh, you don't sound black, or you don't look like black people I know, or you speak without an accent. That's really great. Those are sort of these backhanded compliments, if you will, that really aren't compliments at all. And it's sort of like death by a thousand cuts. 
So these microaggressions happen all day long, all lifelong, and they build up. And what that does is it slowly um, results in crushed attitude, diminished capacity, and those microaggressions are devastating. So what you can do when you see or hear one is you can interrupt and ask, what did you mean by that? Because I'm not sure if what you said is what you meant to say. Your intent doesn't seem to match your impact. You can create an opportunity to educate the person and explain why what they said was problematic. And then if you don't feel like you have that knowledge base or that skill, if there are other people around you, when they stand up to say something, you can echo them to reinforce the positive message and, and effectively try and point out that microaggression and let everyone know it's not acceptable to you or the folks that you're around. Speaking up and calling out offense, that seems to be a theme as we have had this conversation here on KSL News Radio today on race relations. You've mentioned it here. Uh, the Deseret News, as Jason Lee earlier mentioned it. Uh, my past guest, Libby Mitchell, she mentioned it. Thank you for that. We're going to have to leave it at that. Let's you and I connect again in the future, though. There's much I'd like to ask you and much I am certain I could learn from you. Uh, but at that, we'll say goodbye. Adrian Andrews, thank you so much for your time and your participation in this effort here at KSL News Radio. You bet. Thank you. All righty. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we return, my final guest in this special hour of race relations in Utah is Melanie Davis, the daughter-in-law of retired pastor France Davis, also a mother, a wife, a business owner, and a black woman here in Utah. She will share her experience and her expertise next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.